0: The big headline in Miami-Dade tonight, there is a mandatory evacuation order.
1: Lisa, we are in the heart of the evacuation zone. More than 700,000 people have
2: left Miami-Dade. All this is storm surge, and it keeps pouring into parts of downtown Miami.
0: More street signs flying across the road right now as the winds continue to whip here. A new study finds in 2017, Hurricane Irma killed more than 400 seniors living in Florida nursing homes.
2: I'm a paraplegic. They're quadriplegic. There are some people need oxygen. Some people might need a nurse. So it depends on the individuals. Some of my friends that don't drive or don't have whatever they rely on the Miami-Dade County transportation to pick them up and go to a shelter hoping that they find a bed or they can do their personal needs and all that stuff. So it gets difficult.
1: That's Anson James, director of the spinal cord injury support group in Miami-Dade. He's also been in a wheelchair for the past 16 years after a drunk driver killed his friend and left him paralyzed from the waist down. He knows the struggle spinal cord injury patients face every day, especially when a hurricane is approaching. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jack Strom.
3: And I'm Paige Flannery. Welcome to the Climate Justice Podcast. In this episode, we'll dive into the unique problems those with mobility impairment face in the face of an impending disaster. You'll hear from experts and volunteers on the front lines working to help this vulnerable population get the critical services they need, from healthcare to supplies to transportation. We'll also talk about the ways you can help.
1: When I talked to Anson James, he spoke frankly about the needs of his community and how county services often fall short of properly addressing those with critical mobility issues in a time of crisis. He says, though well-meaning, special needs shelters can do more harm than good.
2: They're not going to have a hospital bed. They're going to have a cot. And, you know, for us that have spinal cord injury, if you lay on a cot, you're going to get a bed sore because, you know, you're not, you're not on the proper thing. You, you can't lay for so long. And if you have an accident, bowel care or or a bowel accident or or a bladder accident, you know, who's going to clean you up? Who's going to help you? You know what I'm saying? Are there nurses there? Are there medical professions in these shelters? No, I mean, is it the county's fault? I mean, maybe they don't have the manpower. I mean, I do get all that, but they need to have a better facility. I would think like a whole, like an old rehab center, instead of tearing it down, leave it for shelter, leave it for people with spinal cord injury or people with any disability, not just spinal cord. There are elderly people that will use wheelchair because they can't walk up a step. There's grandma and grandpa.
3: It seems to me there are two big issues here lack of awareness by the larger community, and a lack of trust in existing resources. I spoke with physician and public health expert, Dr. Daniel Simano, who specializes in the effects that disaster and extreme weather events have on vulnerable communities by interfering with access to healthcare and critical medical supplies.
4: These supplies, for example, in people living with spinal cord injury are super necessary. Uh, they need them to cast themselves so they can urinate. So if they don't do it, they're going to be prone to uh, an infection, urinary tract infection, which is a primary cause of morbidity and emergency department visits in this population. So if they don't make it to the hospital, get the supplies and treat themselves or get the healthcare provider to help them, the whole cycle is broken. Right. And I'm just talking about an example of a flooding. If we're talking about a disaster such as a hurricane coming to Miami, we know that we, plans happen five days in advance. And sometimes when hurricanes hit, they may stop the health care services for weeks. Now imagine being someone living with these disabilities and dependent on health care workers, supplies and, and health care providers and healthcare services. So all these disruptions are heavily impacted.
3: Dr. Simano recalls a situation where one of his patients was unable to get out on time before a hurricane and had to shelter in place.
4: One of them, for example, he, he was living in North Miami. Of course, he's a uh, quadriplegic, and during this hurricane experience he wasn't able to register because he doesn't have hands control. So everything had to be done through the phone, the systems weren't weren't working, the lines were busy, and he was like 12 hours from the hurricane hitting. And his elderly uh, mother wasn't able to put up the, um, the shutters, and you can imagine the stress because they lost power.
3: You know, I've been involved in helping the disabled community for years. I specifically interact with those with intellectual and developmental disabilities because I'm currently the president of the Special Olympics chapter here at the University of Miami. As we discuss these challenges that those with physical disabilities face, there's a correlation between a matter of life and death with access to supplies and preparing for disasters. And this is something that just isn't talked about as much as it should
1: be. This is very eye-opening for those of us who don't have experience with disabilities. They're almost an invisible population we need to be aware of. And
3: the number of people in our community with mobility impairment may surprise you. According to the most recent numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau's American Community Survey, the number of people in Miami-Dade County with disabilities living in poverty is 29.8%.
1: Sabrina Cohen knows all too well the need for awareness and lobbies hard to help those in her community with disaster preparedness. Cohen was paralyzed at the young age of 14 after she was ejected from the backseat in a car crash. As a member of the Miami Beach Accessibility Committee, she says transportation is a big problem because the county-run STS, or Special Transportation Services Program, can quickly become stressed during a disaster.
5: I know that that community particularly takes it very seriously, and they try to get into the shelters ahead of time, and Transportation is crazy without a hurricane. I mean, the biggest issues with the STS is they're booking like a thousand rides a day and like people are waiting hours to get picked up and dropped off. So when a hurricane's coming in, they're trying to get to an appointment or go get their needs. I could only imagine that the confusion and the challenge of that is like tenfold. But that's why I think prepping ahead of time is probably for people that don't have their own transportation or they don't think that their home environment is safe enough. I think that's really where the early prep is important.
3: Many of my Special Olympics athletes use STS, and although it is a great resource, it's not always reliable. So I can imagine how much worse that is during a disaster situation. Clearly, transportation is a big problem for this community, but also a trust in services. Dr. David McMillan is a staff scientist at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine He's the project lead on a study looking at hurricane preparedness for people with mobility impairment. Let's hear from David to get some fresh results.
6: What we've learned here is truly eye-opening. It seems there's a failure to deliver, essentially a gap in the services. You think you're getting one thing and you get another. I spoke about this with a fellow study team member, Marissa Carino-Mason, a second-year medical student here at the Miller School of Medicine.
7: We went out and basically surveyed different spinal cord injury support groups to figure out what they wanted to be evaluated. Um, This issue or discrepancy between basically the resources available to them provided by the counties or just community services and this gap between what was available versus what they were doing or how they were utilizing these resources.
6: So with our collective research objective and Marissa's expert knowledge on existing hurricane preparedness resources, I asked her, What about the results she found interesting?
7: Surprisingly, our survey results showed that people with spinal cord injury do not know about the different resources that are available, which was surprising to us because when we were looking on the other side, you know, figuring out what resources are available, there seemed to be so many that people taking advantage of these resources, we wouldn't have second-guessed that.
6: In fact, of the 58 survey respondents, Only three reported having used transportation services during a hurricane, and only one had used a shelter.
7: The minority of people who have used these resources have had very poor experiences. In addition to the lack of awareness, there's this component of just these resources having a bad rap. It just goes to show that even though systems may be put in place, there really has to be this critical appraisal of the services that they're providing and compare it to what they promise.
6: What we know so far is there seems to be a trust issue, and the government services need to work hard to gain back that trust. So what services do local governments actually provide to those with special needs
1: when preparing for a storm? Pam Giganti joins us with more on that county's plan. Pam?
0: Thanks, Jack. I spoke with Nixa Serrano, the Operations Bureau Manager for Miami-Dade County's Office of Emergency Management, about their Emergency Evacuation Action Plan, or EEAP, which services about 4,000 residents. She addressed their large-scale coordination process to best serve those who are most vulnerable during a disaster.
8: The impetus on the program is always to get people to think of disaster planning and hurricane preparedness year-round. The registry is not just for hurricanes. It could be for any event where we might try to identify people in the area that may need additional assistance. We want to encourage them to register ahead of time so that they're on our registry, you know, when an emergency does happen.
0: has stressed how important the registry is in allowing the county to know before disaster strikes exactly what someone's particular needs are, especially if they're disabled.
8: We ask a lot of different questions and we evaluate the individuals who are going to require evacuation assistance based on, you know, what transportation needs they might have, as well as any physical needs. If uh, someone, for example, might be bed bound or, you know, require a wheelchair and a liftgate vehicle, they indicate that on their application. Um, So just based on the information they provide us, we try to make the best accommodations that we can in terms of placement.
0: These special needs shelters are staffed with medical personnel and fire rescue officials. There's also an effort to make sure those who depend on medical devices, such as power wheelchairs, have access to electricity.
8: So if somebody who is might be oxygen dependent or electric dependent or on a vent and have like those higher level needs, they might be sheltered at a hospital, but not admitted just because their needs are such that if, for example, somebody who is on continuous oxygen, if the power goes out, and what they use at home eventually runs out of power, then they're medically compromised and, and would need that level of higher
0: care. And when it comes to complaints about slow response times and transportation issues, Nixa says they rely on several services.
8: We have partnerships with STS. Miami-Dade Transit does the transportation. Miami-Dade County Public Schools assist with the transportation. We have ambulance providers in some cases
0: that would assist. Nixa says the county applies best practices when a disaster strikes, but emphasizes the county can't provide all services to everyone on its own.
8: We try to leverage as many partnerships as we can within the community, and they also put out the word for us in terms of their community groups that are the the boots-on-the-ground folks bring awareness to the program, get people to register, and even after a disaster, go out into the community and check up on, on those individuals that we know are on the registry that may be part of their municipality.
0: So what's the takeaway? Registering early lets officials know what your needs are so they can best help you. Nixa said shelters need to be looked at as a last resort and that staying with family or friends is usually more comfortable. Paige? One plan the county has in place is
3: funded by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and gets volunteers on the ground and in underserved communities immediately after a disaster. It's called CERT, or Community Emergency Response Teams. Briera Crockett talked to a longtime member of the program.
5: I had the chance to sit down with Winnie Brown, a volunteer and trainer since 2004. She talked about the critical role they play as those first in before the first responders get there.
1: That is the great thing about the CERT because you are, like you just said, the first responder until help comes. So you will be taught medical stuff that, you know, basic medical that you can uh, help stop the bleeding or if a person's choking, you know, stuff like that. Winnie says CERT members are given hats
5: and vests so they are easily identified by residents. She says the whole point is to have trained volunteers who know the areas well to help the most vulnerable immediately after a disaster.
1: If you're in your neighborhood, you will be the first one to get to the area and start help and then call it in so that you are more likely the first responder. Because like I said, this program is supposed to be Community. You're supposed to do it within your community. Currently,
5: CERT is looking for more volunteers. Right now, because of COVID, the training is hybrid. 12 hours online and two full days in person for those that are interested.
3: Thanks, Bree. Aside from the county teams, there are other volunteer groups focusing on helping the community handle disaster situations. One of them is the Dade County Street Response Disaster Relief Team run by a group of medical students in South Florida. I spoke to community organizer and third year FIU medical student, Angelique Gadson, about the work they do and how to best prepare and help vulnerable communities in the face of impending weather calamities.
5: I believe that it's the volunteer organizations, those community partners that are essential to just to maintaining the basic rights of humans in in their local environments right now. The county is there, They, they are working, they are supplying, they have resources. But at times, the deployment of these resources, the effectiveness, it just needs more work. So kind of twofold. You're going to have people, you're constantly telling them about information. You're going into the ground. You're explaining, they sign up for this. Get prepared. This is how you do it. This is where you'll access things. Make a disaster plan. And then on the other hand, you're going to go to the top and you're
3: going to affect change. So even though these organizations are putting in the work on the ground, Angelique says lawmakers need to create policy to better protect those who are at higher risk of harm and death.
5: In order to get ahead of these disasters, in order to get ahead of the high morbidity mortality rates within the lower income communities, you have to change the policy. You have to educate people on the ground within the community, but also the leaders who are making laws and who are not prioritizing people who are at higher risk. They're not prioritizing where is the aid going to? Aid comes in, but who is it dispersed
1: to? It seems in order to help this vulnerable community of people with mobility issues, we need groups to work together and create better policy. Clearly, it goes back to awareness. Again, here's Dr. Simano.
4: If you're living with a disability, make sure to speak out loud and to be heard. Reach out to those systems, community members, healthcare providers that are there for you because there is always someone around we just need to hear you because we we sometimes don't hear everything. Regardless if you're a healthcare provider, regardless of your role in the community, be aware that there may be people around you that need your help. This el- elderly population that have mobility limitations, people living with spinal cord injury, because we can do so much more with so little. So be aware and remember that we're all vulnerable to climate change, to weather and disasters. So the more prepared we are, Uh, the better. The more resilient we are, the more resilient our communities will be. And hence we will be able to deal with all these situations together.
3: In this podcast, we've explored the intersectionality of disability and climate justice in Miami-Dade County, an area prone to extreme weather events.
1: We'd like to thank the Miami Climate Alliance and Florida Clinicians for Climate Action for putting us in contact with many of our guests and for allowing us to explore this topic more in depth. We now have a better understanding of the issues at hand.
3: If you'd like to learn more about these critical programs or if you'd like to get involved, we have included information and links to these organizations in the description below. Thank you for joining us.